it's surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working so hard to get better bouncing running with the rest of their lives. Today's show is brought to you by Prevenex, my favorite supplement brand. I use so many, so much of their stuff. I say so many of their supplements, but I use more than that because I love their protein powder, their Neurofi Plus. Um, I use it every single day. It literally is my afternoon, my mid, not my afternoon, my kind of like mid-morning snack after my run. I'm not talking about that today, though. I'm talking about Joint Health Plus. I love this supplement, and I just got some test results back on my knee, which was some very, very good stuff. All right, so I have bursitis in my left knee. I got an MRI. They took a look at uh, just the structure of my knee, how everything was looking in there, and to my utter delight, they said that everything looks great in that knee. Now, that is excellent news. I'm 40 years old. I've been running since I was 10. Okay. In addition to that, I have a lifetime of basketball as well. I just, you know, I played in middle school, in high school, in college, a ton outside on the pavement. And my knee structurally looks really, really good. Again, there's probably a lot of factors for that. But one of those factors is Joint Health Plus. I've been using it every single day for a year, for a year. And I'm so glad that I have. So go check out Joint Health Plus today at Prevenex.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com. And use code RUNNER15 for 15% on your first order of anything in all things that they sell. So let's get into it today with Sarah Williardi. Sarah is a master's runner who has had her own injury battle. So she was battling plantar fasciitis for a long time time. This is an injury that afflicts so many runners. I was excited to have her on the show because not only did she battle it for, geez Louise, so long. Uh, I think she took like nine months off from running, nine months off from running. And then she actually had a reoccurrence after that. And yet here she is, 52 years old, knocking out PRs at literally every single distance that she has raced in the last 18 months. That is absolutely incredible. And she has bigger, higher goals. She has, you know, things in the future that she can't wait to do. And we'll touch on, touch upon that at the end. And in addition, we actually open up with a little, little heat talk, which is um, very relevant in the, up here in the Northeast over the past couple of days. It's hot. It's humid. Summer is here. And we talk a little bit about that too, just how we acclimate and just all things heat related. I know so many of us are dealing with that right now. If you are one of my Houston listeners or down in Southern Florida, you've been dealing with this for a while, but you know what? It's nationwide now and it's not going anywhere. So we'll touch on that as well. So let's dive into it with Sarah Williardi. Hello, Sarah Williardi, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, I am delighted to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me. A fellow New Englander, at least. I don't don't know if you grew up in New England, but you live here now, so I can certainly appreciate that. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, I have to ask you, since it was 93 degrees today here in Rhode Island, I'm sure it was not that different in the Middletown, Connecticut area. Um, Did you run yet today, or did you run today, and are you... Where are you in the heat acclimation process, or I should say the humidity acclimation process, since that is uh, sometimes an even taller task? Okay, so I did run today six really easy miles, and it was completely fine. 
because I ran yesterday and it was a horror show. <laughs> yeah, so I learned my lesson. Yesterday was my long run. It was 15 miles. I was supposed to have like eight miles at marathon pace or something. That did not happen. Um, I had already thought maybe I'll try for six. That didn't happen. Um, I mean, it was a hot, brutal, brutal day yesterday. Oh, gosh. It it really was. And it's funny. We're, we're at that point in the year where it's kind of affecting all of us, right? I mean, if we have our friends who live in Houston or maybe South Florida, who've kind of been dealing with this for a while, but now it's kind of like the whole rest of the country is now caught up with the, the heat and the humidity. And it's funny. It's like every year, I feel like we have to relearn this lesson of like, how much is it actually going to affect me? Right. And so I ran with a friend yesterday and she did fantastic. So that's the other thing is having someone with you where for some reason she's doing great, but it, it just slams into you. Right. And we're completely not used to it. And it's also not always as bad as this weekend. This weekend is really bad. That's fair. Right. If you're in the nineties and the dew point is in the mid to high sixties or God forbid the seventies, it's good luck. And that's the thing is that I was always looking at humidity because that's always the one that's like it shows up on your weather forecast. It shows up in your weather app. Sometimes you just dig a little deeper for the dew point. Um, they're not always the same. They're usually in par- kind of in lockstep, but they're not always there. But it's interesting now that so many people um, are moving to Boulder and Flagstaff, right? It's like that. It's like the the hub of those places seem to be like the hub of American distance running in so many respects. And it's so interesting to see some of them be like, come down to sea level this time of year, be like, oh, this is no different than running in altitude. Like, I'm not, the, the dew point is messing with me just as much as the altitude was, except there isn't any like cool calculator adjustment scale that I can use for this. Right. Let's hope. You can actually calculate um, humidity and temperature pace adjustments, but you have to remember to do that and you have to be willing to do that. And I would say I failed on both counts yesterday. I both forgot about that and was not really willing to do it anyway. So double fail. That's a good point. That, I was actually looking it up today. I, I've seen that I have the charts, right? So you have like the, all right, if the, if the dew point is like less than 60, it doesn't really matter. If it's 60 to 64, it could matter a little bit. If it's 64 to 68, like it's going to have an impact. If it's above 68, if it's into like 72, then you're, then you're really into, into trouble. I have a whole thing like seconds per degree and stuff like that. But you know, that really does imply that you look at that and pay attention to it. So, so do you, is there like a, a, like a web-based calculator that you actually plug those times in, or do you look at like the charts? What do you do? Um, my coach sent me something. So he sent me something several years ago to calculate how much you should adjust. Um, and you know, once I'm used to it, then I will remember that. Uh, but yesterday I, I really just was like, this is just terrible. Yeah. Right. Oh my God. I know it, it, it really, it really can affect you. And it's interesting though, cause I have found where it's like, especially later in the summer, it kind of gets into my head of like, no, you should be used to this by now. Or like, Hey, you stop being a wimp. Like you can get through this, right? Like it's only 78 degrees. Like you've been dealing with this all summer. 78 is pretty nice. You were wishing for this weather. Yeah. The two points high, you're going to be fine. But it's funny. Like it, no matter how much like you want to will yourself past it, like it's one of those ever present factors. It is. And, you know, I've actually run a couple of incredibly hot marathons 
And in the hot races, I was much more willing to say, um, okay, today is what it is, right? You just, it's just brutally hot and you just kind of have to go with that because you, you can't survive this. Your, you know, your plan is not happening. Um, What's the hottest marathon you've done? Uh, I did Vermont City the year it was canceled, which I think was 2016. Oh. I think it was 85 or something. Um, and I was like the 11th to last person to get an official time before they shut down the clock. <laughs> so what what was the time for that race? And then what was like your leading into the race? What was like your range of like, all right, this is kind of where my fitness level is. Um, I think I ran 4.29, and I had been hoping to break 4. Oh, wow. So a huge difference. It was a huge difference. And I would say I actually ran fairly intelligently given conditions. I slowed down a lot, obviously. Um, yeah, like a minute, a little over a minute per mile. When you finished, did you feel like you had more to give? Like, oh, I could have gone a little faster here. I played it too conservative. Or did you feel like you hit it like right on the button? It was an incredibly strange experience, so I was really, really happy to finish. Um, that When they close a race and you're running it while they're closing it, they can't notify everybody at the same time. So the information was filtering through in a really weird way. Like We got a rumor at about mile 21 that something from was who? happening. Who, who do you hear the rumor from? Other runners. So somebody oh. would run by and say, I heard that they're stopping the clock. Um, and then you'd run by a volunteer and they would say, I think they're stopping the race. But then another volunteer would be cheering and say, great job. You're doing awesome. And I was literally calculating. I don't know if you know that course, but the end of that course is a path along the lake. And so I start to think to myself, you know, it's also late in a marathon. So you have weird thoughts. Oh, so yeah, for sure. The first thing I think is I'm not going to get lost. Right. So even if they somehow take down all the course markers, I can just follow this path and I'll find the end. And the second thing I thought was, well, I'm wearing my garment, so I can get a time. If they turn off the official clock, I'll still know. And the third and weirdest thing I thought is if they send the police to pull me off the course, they're going to be really out of shape and I'm going to be great. I'm in shape. I can definitely outrun a cop who's going to pull me off this course. That would have been a hysterical chase. It would of be like crazy, right? A marathoner at mile 22 of this incredibly hot marathon, like slowly trying to get away from police officers who are like way overdressed. Right. The We're all in their uniforms and everything. Right, right. They're so. wearing like black long pants, like trying to, Brian, trying to run in 90 degree weather. That would have been a hysterical chasing. That, see, that you bring up a great point about like just how they would do it. Cause like, my initial thought was like for my days as like a caddy when I was a little kid of like, hey, like when say it's like about to lightning out, right? The horn goes off, everyone stops play, right? So it's like, you know, weather, weather conditions, boom, we're putting a stop to it right now. You can't do that. It's not like you're running like the, the marathon project down in Arizona where it's like a six mile loop and you can just kind of like, er, we're stopping now. It's a whole different ball of wax. There's a lot of course to close, right? And so getting the information out, the race director was fantastic. So they put out the next day, people were angry because they did eventually stop the clock and they said, it's not, if you didn't finish after, I think it was probably 4.30 or something. It's an official, if you don't finish by 4.30, it's not an official time. And so there were people that were like 50 states people that were in from far away to run the race. And then it doesn't count. 
So they put out the next day this very detailed letter, basically, about how they had decided, you know, what indicators were they watching? When it got too hot, how did they decide that they were going to call the race? And then how did they calculate the moment that they were going to shut the clock off? Um, So that was fascinating to hear because they talked about the logistics of if you had gotten to this point in the course, you were probably moving at this pace and then give you a a bunch of extra time because you probably slowed down. So those people could all finish. That would mean a 4.30 stop for the time or something like that. Um, It was, it was really interesting. And they, and you know, they closed their letter by just saying, we understand people are angry and we're sorry that it happened this way that we did the best we could. And every runner went home safe and that's our goal. Interesting. Yeah, I remember this happened in Chicago a few years ago when it was like hit 80 degrees. And they, obviously it's like, that's it. from a logistical perspective, that's a completely different ball of wax than the Vermont City Marathon, which is well known and well thought of. But obviously we're talking about a world marathon major in terms of the attendance and all of that. Um, it's so interesting when you see this and you understand like the the safety aspect. And of course you want people to be safe. And then you compare it to like, I, I'm re-listening to Iron War again by Matt Fitzgerald, which is like my favorite athletic audio book of all time. And like Iron Man World Championships are in Kona. Like it always hits 80 degrees during the marathon. Like that happens every single year. That's just part of the race. In addition to that, people have done five to nine hours of extreme exercise, like preceding that 80 degree marathon. And obviously part of it is like, did you prepare for that? And so on and so forth. And anyone who's at Kona is by definition an elite athlete, uh, either in the pro ranks or within their age group. Um, but it's so interesting how like sometimes, you know, these two things can be so different and yet you compare them. You're like, but wait, what's the difference between the two? And uh, I'm not in a position to like say who's right or who's wrong, but it's so interesting to hear like this story than like, 10 minutes ago, I was listening about to like these, these marathoners or these Ironmen who are running, I think it had like 89 or 90 degrees. That's crazy. I mean, you can see why people would be angry. You know, people were really mad, but um, I think it was good that the race director put out this, this really detailed piece of information about how they had gone through making these decisions. Um, so they at least were really very upfront about their, their process. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if there's like a way around that. Like, I, this is so far afield of why I had you be on the show, but this is such an know, interesting we're topic. Like, we are wildly off topic. But that's okay. <laughs> um, I wonder if there's like one of those things you could sign ahead of time just to be like, hey, in case of extreme weather, I want to keep running. Like, it's almost like a waiver release. Right. The other thing, before I had the crazy thoughts about, am I going to get lost? And am I going to like outrun police, which were bananas thoughts? The The much more rational thing was that I thought about my own safety. And because we were starting to get this message about maybe it's not safe. And I had a friend who had, she was such an angel. She had um, put ice in Ziploc bags and she put all that in a backpack. And so she was riding around the course and giving me these ice bags. And the race had done a lot of things too. They had put out more sprayers and more ice. So the first thing I thought was, you know, am I safe? Um, and I thought, you know what? I actually am really am safe. I have been able to keep myself cool because I've had these little ice baggies the whole time. So I'm not in any danger and I'm just going to keep going because of course I really want to finish. Well, you've had that stick to and that drive for a long time now. And that was part of the reason I wanted to have you on because you're someone who 
and this is a topic for so many runners who had battled injury for so long, right? And we're going to talk about the myriad of issues that you've that you've dealt with and the, the different procedures to help remedy them and just the time frame that we're talking about. And yet here you are at an age of setting PRs where people usually don't set PRs, right? So you're 52? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're out there, you're setting PRs in every distance. Like, that is such an incredible feat. So, um, I guess, first, first, let's walk through the injury history a little bit, and then we'll kind of, then we'll set the stage with where you were athletically kind of prior to that. Okay, so the the big injury that really um, kind of demarcated my thinking about running and really my identity about running was a, a bout of plantar fasciitis. Um and I would say I was prone to this prior to starting running. I had some plantar fasciitis with my first pregnancy, and I actually, I didn't start running until I had both my kids, and I delayed starting because I had plantar fasciitis again, and I got some uh, orthotics, and so this was sort of something I had dealt with on and off for a while, um, and it, you know, went away, and I had a, a good several years of running. Um, and then uh, it was actually right after that Vermont City Marathon. Um, this, this is like so mom thing. Um, we were going to Germany. So I'm a professor of European politics and Germany is my country of focus. And so we were going to, for a research trip for a month. And all I could think about was making sure my family had everything they needed for a month in Berlin. Um, so I had done the training for Vermont City. It the training went well. The race was terrible. Um, we get to Germany and I realize I've packed two pairs of running shoes, but they were the ones I used to train for the marathon. So they were really totally trashed. Um, and a lot of the streets in Berlin are cobblestone. So I was doing a lot of running in dead shoes on terrible surfaces. I was super stubborn. I had decided I was going to run a hundred miles every month, um, come hell or high water or a really bad case of plantar fasciitis. Um, and so I just basically, and, and I mean, the way the ridiculous thing is they have running shoes in Germany, right? I mean, yes. I could have totally just gone. <laughs> I've never and, been there, but I can co-sign that. <laughs> they definitely do. Right. They totally have running shoes there. I could easily have gone. It would have actually been fun to go to a German running store. That never crossed my mind. Um, I just ran in these dead shoes and gave myself a completely awful case of plantar fasciitis. Um, and then, you know, it sort of got better and it got worse again. And that was um, by the time I really had to, I mean, that was July and it was kind of on again, off again. I was going to try to run the Philadelphia Marathon that fall. Um, by October, I had to totally pull the plug um, on the race and really try to think about getting the plantar fasciitis better. But I would try something, it would get a little better, I would run, I would try something to get a little better, I would run. Um, it, it was awful. I finally stopped running and eventually went into a boot. Um, so my physical therapist put a, a limit on me. He said I could spend up to $40 on any gadget to cure plantar fasciitis. But more than that, I had to run it by him because there's all kinds of nonsense out there. And I was like, take my money, just fix this. Okay, I need to dive in because that's a great yeah. topic. What were some of the what were some of the gadgets you tried? All the hope in the world, but that turned out to be complete, you know, throw it in the garbage. 
Right. The things I think work, like I got a Strasbourg sock, which is awful. That's a contraption that you sleep in and it, it keeps your foot, uh, of course, nobody can see this, but it keeps your foot in a bent position all night while you sleep. And that helps because it means that the plantar fascia remain sort of stretched out, um, basically. Um, so I got that. I got every version of something you can rub your foot on. Um, I got like slanty boards to stand on. There was a hundred dollar thing that my PT said, no, that was basically a fancy way of rigging up TheraBand so that you could do, you know, your kind of classic windshield wiper exercise. I don't know why you can't just hook that onto a table leg. That's what he said. You don't need this thing. Um, different kinds of socks. Um, what else did I get? Yeah, that was about it. Man, I can imagine. I can imagine being like, okay, these are low price items. Maybe this will work out for me. What's the harm? And then all of a sudden you have 10 low price items, which would be a shopping cart full of not low price stuff. Um, so, all right. So you, so you go through this wild time in Germany where you're running on the cobblestones. And all I can think of is like the, uh, what was it? The Rome? Marathon, the Rome Olympics, where they're, they're finishing in the last, the last bit over the cobblestones. And isn't Kip, didn't Kip Kano run that? He won that. I barefoot. think maybe barefoot. Yeah. He won yeah. it barefoot. Yeah. Cause he wore maybe that shoes. That would have been better. And did he wear, he wore shoes four years later in Mexico City, but he won barefoot in Rome on the cobblestones. Oh my God. I should have tried that. Had. So that ended up being, I mean, that was the longest stint off running. That was about nine months of basically not running, which was, horrific. Um, and then eventually getting into a boot, uh, for five or six weeks and then kind of slowly coming out of the boot, um, and then getting back to running, um, you know, very carefully. Um, and then believe it or not, the plantar fasciitis came back and I did something, I think it's called elect, I call it electroshock therapy. I think it's actually called shockwave therapy, um, which is different from all these other things. All these other things kind of try to stretch it out or loosen your, oh, also 8 million ways to stretch your calf, all that. Um, but the shockwave therapy is sort of like extra fancy ultrasound. And what it supposedly does is um, somehow penetrate the tissue and break up scar tissue and let you get rid of the junk, basically, that's built up when you have chronic plantar fasciitis. Um, and that worked. I mean, knock wood. But uh, I had that treatment in November of 2018, and it has not come back. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I heard other podcasters who were really into performance and athletics, people like Rich Roll and Tim Ferriss, who used it all the time. And I thought, hey, man, if they're going to use it, then I should too. And I'm so glad that I did. So what's in the stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, all to help you start your day the right way. The special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery. Literally all the things. I mean, there's too many things for me to list. I actually have to like take a pause during the sentence. Uh, but it's it's legit, and I'm so glad that I use it. I use it basically because I know that 
getting my vitamins and minerals from from food is probably the best way to do it. But I usually just don't have the kind of diet and make the kind of food choices that's going to put myself in the optimum position. And that's why I take Athletic Greens to make sure that I have everything I need because I know I'm probably not getting it from food because I just don't quite have the, the discipline or the food choices that I need. And Athletic Greens is there to help me out. And I'm so glad that they are. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. Hey, everybody, do you want to save money on your grocery bill? Well, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. Try America's Best Value Meal Kit for planning dinners today. I love every plate for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I just love having things in my kitchen, especially in my refrigerator, that isn't the same old thing that I do every single week. Also, getting things that aren't too adventurous that my kids are definitely going to eat. Obviously, you're never going to beat that a thousand with that. But with every plate, my kids have really enjoyed it. And I like the food as well. And it's just not the same stuff every single week, which can get tiring. So you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week, swap proteins and sides for things that you like, so you can switch up your dinner routine however you want. And that's the key thing. It's however you want. There's so many options, and it's all great stuff, which is also huge. For me, the difference between this and some of the other uh, services in this genre are, first of all, the price. It's absolutely fantastic. We'll get to it in a second. The kinds of meals that are provided, that they're really good, but not too adventurous, have also been a huge thing for me. And now I've been using these more often now that groceries have kind of gone up and the price for every plate has pretty much stayed the same. So try every plate today. It's $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179. That stands for $1.79 per meal. So get started with every plate, like I said, for $1.79 per meal by going to every plate.com and entering code rambling runner one seven nine today that's up to a hundred and four dollar value so you mentioned you started running after you had two kids so when this all started how long had you been running for a while so i ran um i started in 2009 but i didn't run my first marathon until 2013 um and i would say that's when i got a lot more serious. Um, and so then by 2016, <clears throat> Vermont was like, I think marathon f- five, maybe. Um, and by then I was really trying to, you know, get, get faster. Right. Right. So nine months away from running because of injury is just, it is a long time. Right. And you also, you live a busy life. You got kids, you're a professor, you have a demanding job. Um, and all this being said, I guess my question is, did you ever have thoughts of being like, all right, maybe I'm just not going to be running anymore? Every day, basically every day. I mean, I was remembering this because I knew we were going to have this conversation and I cross-trained either on the bike or the pool and I would put that stuff in the hallway so that I didn't wake up my family so I could get up really early and put on my biking clothes or my get my pool stuff or whatever. Um, and 
every day I would get out there and stare at that stuff for, you know, 30 seconds, couple of minutes, and just like, like are you going to put it on today? Are you going to go do it today? Or are you done? This is it. But every day I put it on. So every day it was like, okay, you're still going. And when you were going through that, did you think that certain goals would be on the shelf? Or did you start viewing running in a less optimistic light, um, not just short term, but long term through that stretch? I think the goal, so it, I never lost sight of wanting to be competitive, you know, at least with myself. Um, but the short term goal definitely became get back to running without pain. If I could just run without pain, that would be amazing. And I think it really cemented for me how much I cared about running. Like I had, which is pretty funny because I was five marathons in, you know, so it's not like I was dabbling. Um, but uh, with the injury, it just became apparent that I was really willing to do a lot to be able to get back to be able to run. Um, and so kind of recognizing that commitment inside myself made me understand how valuable this was to me. And how did it affect you mentally and emotionally taking something away that had been a pretty significant part of your life for, you know, the better part of a decade leading up to that? Um, I mean, it was it was almost a full on depression. Um, it was I was very sad. I was very angry. I cried a lot. Um, my kids both remember this time as the kind of horrible time when mama couldn't run. Um, which was, you know, interesting too, because, um, I think a lot of women worry about taking time away from their family for their running. And, um, so in a way I, I was, you know, not running anymore, but my kids could just see how absolutely miserable I was. Um, and so they all really wanted me to be able to get back to it. So that, I mean, that was good. I felt really supported. I felt so supported by my family, um, in this project, but just so, so sad and so angry. So were there, were there things that you tried to do during that time besides like just get back to running faster or more quickly um, to kind of alleviate some of the mental and emotional stress that you were feeling? I thought about therapy for real. Um, and I think therapy is a totally legit answer. And I talked to my doctor about this at one point and just said, like, I, I'm feeling really depressed. Um, and I ultimately didn't um, go to a therapist. I'm not sure why, uh, because it probably would have been helpful. Um, one thing I did was with the cross training, I kept a very clear running schedule. I was actually working with your coach at that time. I was um, working with James and he was fantastic at cross training and helping me figure out a way to keep the, like the schedule, you know, because that was a big part of it. Um, I tried to stay in touch with my running friends and some of them were willing to do things like bike or swim with me some of the time. So that was really helpful. What I didn't do was like clean my house. Did not do that for sure discover some new hobby. Nope, not interested in that. You know, um, it, I did do a lot of weightlifting. I had already been doing some weightlifting and I definitely did more. And that was something I really liked and something I could also do. Right. So I, w I was not impaired with, um, with working at the gym. 
Um, so that was really good. Just to, and, and I think weightlifting makes you feel really powerful because I felt very powerless a lot of the time. So that was really helpful. That's a good way of putting it. Now, some people will start cross-training. And then it morphs into like, no, I now I no longer view this as cross training. Now I'm just doing this sport that other people really enjoy. Now I just really enjoy it. Um, and then there's other people, and I think I have fallen into this. And I think the way you've described it is something that I felt those, those same things. Where no, it it still feels like cross training. It still feels like I'm doing this thing as you know instead of the thing that I actually want to do, why do you think that you were unable to, or, or maybe even just unwilling to embrace the bike or swimming for the sport that it is, as opposed to the sport that it isn't? So I did dabble a little in triathlon because um, as I was able to return to running a little bit, everybody was like, oh my gosh, you swim all the time. You bike all the time. This is obvious. Um, and it was really fun. You know, I I did a duathlon that was great, um, but I realized sort of two kind of amusing things. One is that I would say I'm a highly competent recreational swimmer, but anybody who's been on a swimming team for literally five minutes is definitely faster than I am. Um, so if you've never been on a swim team like me, then I can probably swim faster than you. But if you've even like in junior high, you are hundred percent are faster than I am. Yeah, it's such it's such a technique dependent sport. Oh, it's so technique, and somehow I just couldn't muster the energy to learn that technique. Like I would have to really invest in it, and I could probably get into that, but I just didn't. Um, and with biking, I liked biking. I had done some biking previously. I had done some pretty serious bike trips in college, but I just get scared. Like I don't really want to go very fast. You know, I like going on a bike and I like going far on a bike, but I do not want to ride fast. So that kind of limited my ability to have either of those things be competitive because I didn't feel like learning how to swim fast and I was too scared to bike fast. Yeah, I can see I can see how that would be limiting in each of, in each of those cases. That's for sure. So when describe the the maybe it's not like an exact date, but around the time when things started to turn the corner for your PF, I guess the first time before, it re- before there was a reoccurrence, um, and kind of what you were doing at that point, and what, I guess, what you were able to do to, and sometimes it's what we don't do, right? Because we hold ourselves back in certain ways. But what things that you were able to do to make sure that, all right, like this, this lengthy process that you're going through hopefully is going to end with you being where you want to be. So one thing that I think was really helpful was I was I was always willing to get help, right? Because I I definitely needed a lot of help. Um so the boot was this weird experience because it it totally fixed the plantar fasciitis meaning I was no longer in pain because I had really been in pain, you know, every day and nearly every step for many months. So putting on the boot stopped the pain instantly. And that was such a relief. It was funny because it was like totally makes the disability visible. So for other people, they had had no idea that this was happening. But now I'm teaching in a boot. All my students can see that. Random people on the street can suddenly see that I, you know, I'm quote unquote disabled. I have something wrong. So I got all this external sympathy right at the moment that the pain stopped, which was kind of weird. Um, and then I had a 
physical therapist that I had worked with when I, way back before I was running, who had moved to Utah. And I called him and said, you know, uh, Tim, I, I need some help with this. And he hooked me up with someone locally who, as I was transitioning out of the boot, did a lot of work with basically mobility more than anything else. Because when you hold your foot still for that long, um, you can just have a lot of really bad lingering effects. So she helped me get back from kind of boot to no boot. Um, and then I had a walking program that was like three days a week. It wasn't even, it was not a run walk. It was like a sit walk, right? So some days I would do nothing and other days I would walk. Um, and then gradually like building up the running a little bit at a time, um, a minute on, a minute off. Uh, and that was then spectacular. Um, it was just so amazing to be, I mean, I remember one run, um, here we have a, a, you know, we live on the, um, Connecticut river. So there was a road down there that I went and ran by and it was just like, you know, the angels were singing or something because it was so good to be able to just go out and run in this beautiful place. And it wasn't hurting. Where were you fearful at all that you were going to do something that would cause it to come back? Terrified. And how did you get over that? Was it just keep going out, you know, day after day? Or were there certain things that you had to do to kind of get yourself in the right mind frame? Um, it was definitely uh, sort of exposure therapy, you know, like go out to try it. And I I did really start with like a minute walking, a minute running, a minute walking, a minute running. Um, I do have a physical therapist that's in town that I have worked with for a long time. And he was really helpful at just saying, look, if it does start to hurt, you just back off and then we try again, right? And so it's not like one second of pain means that you're back at the very beginning of this saga or something like that. It's, you know, you are probably going to feel some weird things when you are coming off of that long of a time on the couch. Things sometimes just feel strange. Um, and so just having like very, very, very gradual start and you know, a couple of people who were willing to say, yeah, it's okay. Like if it hurts a little bit, just back off. It's funny. We get those situations where we're coming back from injury and it can almost feel like your mind's playing tricks on you, right? Like you become this like injury hypochondriac where you can feel everything real or imagined. And it feels like it's heightened to like a 10 X situation. All you can think about is, is it hurting? Is it hurting? Is it hurting? Is it hurting? It's just like a chant, you know? I know. It's like it's like you have a diagnostic check every three seconds. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh my God. I tried to do... So here's also another funny thing I did. I would listen to like really funny music, right? Like um, that song, I like big butts and I cannot lie. That was like my <laughs> theme song for coming back from injury because it's just so goofy. Like you can't listen to that and be all that worried and upset because the song is so hilarious. So I put on anything like that that was just funny. Just try to laugh and and relax. Oh, that's 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 I wonder if there's like two benefits to that, right? There's the benefit that you just mentioned which is hysterical one. It's amazing that you tried that. I guess you tried everything. So this was going to the pile of trying everything. And then the other thing too is that like again I've, who knows if this is true or not, but I've definitely heard it. Then we've all been there. We've all heard stories of the similar thing where like just being in a 
in a good mood, in a positive mood, not just positive, like you're neutral, like an overwhelmingly positive mood. And certainly laughter and extreme happiness will fall into that. But like that, that also has some physical effects. So I wonder if like just being in that state, you know, in of itself was obviously it's not going to solve your PF, but I wonder if that like has a positive effect on you, just generally speaking. I, I think absolutely. And so, you know, another thing that I tried to do was just lower stress um, in my life, uh, which is not easy. I mean, y- you have kids and a full-time job, you know the deal. It's you're constantly busy. There's always something that needs doing. Um, so I tried hard to cut back on, you know, anything that was causing me more stress. And I tried, you know, taking more baths, drinking more wine, um, anything I could do to just have life be a little more relaxing and a little less crazy. Um, Because I do think that promotes healing. So tell me about the PF reoccurrence. Why, Why do you think that happened? So I don't know why that happened. So everything, so that was sort of like summer 2017. It cleared up and I got to tell you this, which was amazing. I got a PR my first race back. It was crazy. Hey, the wine worked. I know. (laughs) I was like, man, that cross training, that paid off. It was in a 5K and my 5K PR was super duper soft, but it was still like, what a glorious way to return, right? Um, So that was great. I ran some half marathons in the fall. And then in the spring... I ran the Donna Marathon down in Florida, and it was super hot again. That was my second hot marathon. So I finally get back to my beloved marathon distance. It's 85 degrees again. I ran even slower than at Vermont. I ran like 454. Um, But it was still a win because I, I didn't have any plantar fasciitis. So I was like, all right, I can return to this distance. I'm definitely going to be able to make this work. Um, and so then the next marathon I was training for was Erie, which is a September marathon. Right. And that's that's kind of like, isn't that one of the favorites for people who try to get a Boston qualifier? Yeah. So by now I was, I don't know if I was still, I was probably trying to BQ. I was, I was still trying to break four hours, um, but I also wanted to BQ. And for me, the time difference wasn't that far apart. I needed a 355 for a BQ. So that was, you know, under four, but not by a million years. Um so in the last four or five weeks of training for Erie, I don't know why it came back. If it was just that, you know, we had boosted mileage um, or bad luck. Um, so in the lead up to Erie, um, I was working with my, so I have a different coach now and I was working with him and we moved all of the easy running to the bike. Um, so I still ran workouts, but everything else I did on the bike um, and that worked and got me through the race and I BQ'd, which was fantastic. Um, but like three weeks later, the plantar fasciitis was raging. And now I've got my Boston qualifying time, which I had been chasing for a while. And I'm going to run Boston in April and I can't run without pain. Um, so that was really bad. Um, I mean, that was very bleak time. And that was when I decided to finally go for this shockwave therapy, which is not covered by insurance. So I had to um, pay for that. And it it wasn't cheap, though it turns out, listeners tip, shop around because the prices were radically different. 
like one podiatrist was going to charge about $1,000 for three treatments and a different podiatrist charged $500 for five treatments. And those were both in Connecticut. There was same, no difference. Same machine and all of that stuff? Everything the same. Wow. Everything the same. So I had to call around because I had to pay for this, and that is just a ton of money. Um, but then it worked. And I also found a doctor who put up with the fact that I was going to ask him basically a million questions all the time. And because I was so you know vulnerable, but also because my job is academic, so I always want to learn everything. So he sent me like... 20 articles about this treatment and various things they had tested it on. Um, that was, that was when I knew I had definitely the right doctor. Um, not only did he not care that I had a million questions, he was like, here's all the academic research. You can read it. Um, so that was great. And he had a lot of confidence, but not, he would say things like, this study says 84% of the cases can be cured with this. We're not just getting rid of the symptoms. We're curing it. Um, and that completely worked. I mean, that's great. I mean, good for you for for figuring it out and finding people who were optimistic. And, you know, I think we've all had medical professionals who maybe aren't into the endurance space very much, where it kind of colors their perception of like, oh, well, your foot hurts. Well, you run marathons, Sarah. So what do you expect? Right. Maybe you should, should maybe running is not for you. Right. 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 Exactly. Like, oh, you're telling me that the, the six time marathoner has, has feet that hurt her. Well, shocker, big deal. You know what I mean? Like maybe let's just cut down on the running and you should be fine. Yeah, totally. And so you really got to be picky about the medical professionals that you work with. Like I went through podiatrists, like Boom, boom, boom. So I would just go see them one appointment. And if they didn't say that they could help me, I was like, okay, well, goodbye. Um, and I'd just go to the next one. Let me ask you about that because that can be a slippery slope too. Cause, but it's obviously it worked out well for you. So I'd love to hear your input here is the difference between being discerning about who you're working with and just shopping around for the diagnosis you want. So you definitely have to watch that because you you can get so mentally mixed up when you're dealing with something like this. For me, for the podiatrist story, it was pretty simple because um, a lot of them just said crazy things. So it was like, it was an easier sorting mechanism because some of the people I talked to, so first of all, anybody said I had a, they had a 100% chance of fixing this. I was like, no, you don't. No doctor has a hundred percent chance of fixing anything. Like that's ridiculous. You can't say that. Something could always go wrong. Um, and then some of them would say, "There's nothing you can do," right? Um, or some of them would try to sell you things. Like right away, they want to sell you a hundred dollar pair of inserts. Um, and I'm like, "Well, I already have five pairs of inserts or something. I already been down the track of buying all the stuff. I bought all the stuff the first time around." Um, so that was a red flag. Um, and finally finding this guy who I felt like was really honest. And and he said, um, look, this is a treatment that's actually used in Europe very commonly. It's new to the United States. He had been trained at a hospital in Seattle. And um, the Bristol Hospital, I'll say Bristol Hospital in Connecticut, got this incredibly expensive machine. And the CEO of the hospital had plantar fasciitis so he said, we're getting the doc who can run this machine and we're going to bring him out here and 
we're going to then make this as affordable as possible. That's what we need. We, runners need a match.com with healthcare executives who have the same problem we have. So we can go to their place because we know they're probably staffing the right people and have the right equipment for us. Exactly. So it was really like, you know, this <laughs> guy wild. who had brought this person in from Seattle with his fancy machine. And then the doctor, too, was fantastic. And he, you know, he, he did not say, I can 100% fix you. But he said, we've had very, very good results. Um, and this is how it's going to go. And oh, I mean, I must make people insane, because I think he told me it was going to take six to 12 weeks or something before I would be pain free. So, of course, at three weeks, it's still hurting. And I call him on the phone and say, you know, this is still hurting. And he said, well, how long has it been? Oh, three weeks? Well, I told you six to 12. <laughs> but so, I'm an overachiever, Doc. I know. I'm like, I got to get better quick. I have to train for Boston. <laughs> um, he also was wonderful because I a lot of people were so all over the map on this. Some people said, you can't run while you're going through the shockwave treatment. And I said, well, that's you know, that's a non-starter. Like I've got this BQ time, I have to start training. Um, whereas my doctor said, no, the, he was talking to other physicians who were treating really high level athletes. And they said, you know, we definitely have everybody run through treatment. It's totally fine. So basically run through discomfort then, because you're going through the treatment because you were in pain. Exactly. So it definitely hurt. And it was like, I was back to hurting, you know, pretty much every step. Um, and the treatment was really painful, um, but it was only took about 10 minutes. So it was 10 minutes of honestly, very, very bad pain. Um, but then it was done and you got about 12 hours of your feet being numb. So I would get a treatment and then I'd go run right away because you had 12 <laughs> hours pain-free. <laughs> and then the plantar fasciitis would kind of come back, but each time just a kind of tiny, tiny, tiny bit less, almost really an indiscernible amount less. Oh my God. That, yeah, it's a very different thing. I'm not going to compare the, the two health, the, 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 you know, I'm not going to compare these two things. I'm not going to compare cancer to plantar fasciitis, but the, the people I've interviewed on this show and just the people I know in life would say the same thing about chemotherapy is that like, it was like a two day, two and a half day drag. So, you know, like say they were having chemo on Friday, it would hit them on Monday, say. Wait, you get a break. Right. So, so you, cause it took a while for everything to kind of happen. So you'd have the situation where like the, the, the day, of, not the day of, cause it was an exhausting thing, but like the, the two days after that, that's when they would get, be like, get a lot of stuff done. Cause they knew like in this situation, so they had done on Friday, they knew Monday and Tuesday they would be wrecked. So they would like try to get it done right after chemo. So they knew, Hey, on Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, I'm going to be wrecked. They'll come out of it Thursday, Friday. I mean, sorry, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday, I got another chemo appointment. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I would try to, you know, it was, it was weekly appointments. So I'd have like 12 hours after the appointment when it didn't hurt. Um, definitely get a run in then. Um, and, and otherwise I just kept running even though it hurt because it, because he said that it didn't matter. Like the treatment would still work. And here you are, you're running today. You're getting all these PRs. You're out there kicking butt. What are you doing in your training routine to make sure that you're not necessarily going to have these flare-ups again. Like, is this a constant? Obviously, you're going to be on constant high alert, um, but there are certain injuries that, you know, we know we can do exercises about that can maybe minimize the risk of a flare-up happening. So for plantar fasciitis, for me, one important change, I mean, footwear is key, not just running, but all the time. 
So I'm always in good footwear. Um, I have on UFOs sandals right now. That's my go-to for at home. Um, if I have to go be professional looking, I just basically have to buy um, expensive, orthotic, hopefully good looking boots um, so that I can, you know, kind of look like a reasonable professor and not like somebody's wearing grandma orthotic boots. Um, and I stretch every morning before I get out of bed. That doesn't take very long, but I just am, it absolutely is a habit now to just kind of stretch out my calves a little bit. Um, what else do I do? Those are really the two things. Good footwear always, um, stretch every morning. I do a lot of other kind of things that I don't think are particularly related to the plantar fasciitis, but it's just good maintenance work. So like a pre-run routine, a post-run routine um, that I do almost every time um, just to keep things moving. Now, this all started with with your footwear, <laughs> footwear choice du jour in Berlin. So what running shoes do you now gravitate towards and or which, which kinds of shoes do you make sure you stay away from? And I know that this is this is very personal for you, Sarah. I'm not going to say everyone who's listening to this who has PF issues will necessarily have the same situation, but I am curious. So there's oh, PF is such a terrible thing that everybody definitely wants shoes to fix it. And um, I don't think that works at all. Uh, I run, I mean, I can tell you what I run in. I run a lot in the um, Nike Pegasus Turbo 2, which is a fantastic shoe that they have stopped making. I luckily have three pairs on back stock. Um, I run a lot in the Adidas Boston Boost, which is another shoe that I really love. Um, I have just started running in the Asics Nimbus Gel something or other. Is it the Asics Nimbus Light or just the regular one? Is it like the Light 2 or is it like the 23, which is like the regular one? Don't know. Okay. Um, that's that's a pretty new shoe to me, but I'm really, I'm, I ran, that's what I ran in yesterday. I love that shoe. It's, it's, it feels like it's like a springy marshmallow, super fun shoe. Also great colors. I was going to ask you about it because the other two that you mentioned are on the other end of the scale in terms of responsiveness. So is that not something that you have to worry about necessarily in terms of like the, the, the squish factor in the midsole? It's been okay, you know, so it's really, um, I was looking for a softer shoe when I went with the Asics Nimbus and um, it feels really good. I've run the last two weekends, I've done my long run in that shoe and it's been great. I bought it as more like a recovery shoe, um, but it's been a great long run shoe. There you go. So I haven't really, I mean, the truth is that I think I've adjusted a lot more with my daily footwear than with my running shoes. So let's talk about that then real quick. So like you mentioned, like the shoes aren't going to solve the problem. They're more like, okay, they don't exacerbate the problem. They don't bring it on. So what are the kind of things you mentioned, the kind of shoes that you do wear? What are the kind of footwear do you have to make sure you stay away from because you know what it could ha- what could happen? Oh, the last time I was in Berlin or a couple times ago, man, they were these cute sandals. They were just... Um, I don't remember what brand they were. They were really, really fancy, super thin sole, kind of a heel. They had little jewels all over them. They were adorable. I was walking around. We were shopping with my girlfriends. I was like, I want these so bad. And it's like, nope, nope, you can't have those. Like you can bring them <laughs> home and put them on a shelf and look at them, but you can't wear them, you know? And um, I finally bought 
uh, actually my husband got me these like really nice orthotic boots that are like professional looking. They're super boring, but they're very nice looking. Um, but like straight up flip flops. Absolutely not. Um, I always have some kind of arch support going on, um, some kind of cushion, right? Um, something to just keep the foot supported and no barefoot. No barefoot. All right. So let's talk about your goals now. Right, because you mentioned to me. Oh, because I came after you on this. Yeah, anyone who's listening to this knows that you're big into marathon. You've mentioned it many times. It seems like that's where your goals are 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 heading you even now. It is. So I, you know, I'm one of those folks that really wants to run a marathon, uh, and that's been hard to do. I actually ran a pandemic marathon. I ran the Jim Thorpe Marathon in September of last year. Hey, one of my athletes did too, Kim Sunling. Oh, okay. So then you know all about that race. That was a great race. It was a little crazy. Um, 149 finishers, I think. Um, so it was super tiny, but I I love going to Jim Thorpe. That was a great town. That race organizers were fantastic. Um, it was really, really hard to run such a tiny marathon. I don't think I had fully understood what that was going to be like. So like I had about six miles in the middle when I did not see another person at all. Um, and so that was tough. Um, I did not run close to what I had hoped at that race. Um, but I, you know, I kind of took away from it. like my son was actually able to rent a bike and ride backwards on the course and meet me at mile 21. So that was my biggest joy for that race. I'll probably never have another marathon where he rides, you know, next to me for the last five miles, but that's basically on a, you know, on a rail trail. So then it, it wasn't closed to traffic. So it was totally fine. Um, so then this spring I thought about, actually I was going to train for Newport and I started training and I was just like slogging out these January miles by myself. And I finally said, you know what? No. The weather for that race is almost never good. I've never run it, but I'm always aware of it because I live, you know, I'm in Rhode Island. Rhode Island's pretty small, so I'm very close to it. And I, every year it happens, I'm like, oh, my God, I am so glad I didn't sign up for this. I feel like I've felt that way for, like, every year for the last 10 years. Well, and the course is hilly, you know, and I'm trying to run and fast. And super so. windy. You're running next to the ocean. Right. So I, I was working so hard to get myself enthusiastic about that race. I had a whole thing about it's the Daffodil Festival. So I was like, oh, it's going to be like a daffodil-themed race. And I had, like, yellow as my phone screen and stuff like that. Um, and it just wasn't working. I was like doing these long runs in January. It was, there was, I mean, I remember one, there was like, it was so awful. I think I ran some of it on the treadmill and then some of it outside. There was sleet coming down. There were like plows out. It was awful. And I finally just said, forget it. I'm, I'm not interested. Um, and so I bailed on that. No spring marathon. Um, so I'm registered for three marathons in the fall. Um, I'm registered for Berlin because the Berlin marathon is the same day as the German elections. So I'm going to be over there for work anyway. And in 2017 was the last so let me time ask this you a question. happened. When, 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 you're, when your folks at Wesleyan ask you about that day, um, and then obviously your friends, your running friends ask you about that day, if someone who is in neither camp were to ask you, but I don't even know what day it is, October 10th, whatever day it is. Um, like, hey, what are you looking forward to on October 10th? Which one would you say first, the election or the race? Oh, man. Um, I don't even know. 
That's a good question. I mean, probably the race, to be brutally honest. Um, but it's going to be fantastic because so the Germans have a rule that you can't uh, campaign while the polls are open. So the week leading up to the race, I'm going to be over there with a, a study group and we get to meet with journalists and party politicians and just like a lot of really, really great chances to learn about all the issues of the election and a lot of other scholars are there. So it's a great time to both see friends and network. Um, but it'll, then be an, the, it'll be a historic election. I mean, it's been oh, it's so, a huge election. I mean, Angela Merkel was huge. there for so long. Uh, it's such a unique election too. Just the process that they go through for that. It's it's going to be a really important election. Is it is the chancellor? Is that what they call? It? Yeah, yeah. Um, and she's retiring, so it's um, she's been chancellor since two thousand five. So it's a really huge deal. Um, and I study women in politics, so she's been someone I've written a lot about, and I'm really really interested in. Um, but they stop all polling, all news coverage while the polls are open, they just say, nope, right now we're voting. So you can't do anything. So when I was there in 2017, I just spent the day of the election spectating the marathon because there wasn't really a lot of work to do anyway. They vote on Sunday. Um, so it was great. I got to see that marathon, super fun. And I thought, oh, you know what? Next time around, I'm going to see if I can run this thing. Um, so you have three three marathons. Okay, so what's, let's just let's, let's go through the dates if you remember them. We're pretty close. So the first one is Berlin, which is September 26th, which I registered for like in the fall. They had kind of normal registration process. I actually roped a couple of friends into it because it's easier to get into Berlin if you register as a team. Um, so two other political scientists are going to also run this marathon with me. Um and then, you know, the whole COVID thing has been so complicated and a lot of things have to go right for me to get to run Berlin. Um, they have to have the marathon. I don't know if they've had any marathons in Germany yet. I don't really think that they have. Um, I have to be allowed to go there. So I'm not, I think I can go there now. Um, and I think I'll be pretty likely to be able to go since I can go as a in professional capacity. Um, the academic organizations have to be willing to pay for international travel, which also is like really just in the last month, academic travel started to open up again because that was completely shut down. Um, so since Berlin felt pretty tenuous, I decided to go ahead and also register for wine glass. Um, I was going to do that in 2020, and I was really excited about that race. I think it's, it's, I haven't ever run it, but it's supposed to be a great race. It seemed like one that would be really good for my family to come to because it's smaller. It's easier for them to see. Right. And it's not too far away. It's not too far away. I can drive there. Um, I thought my parents would probably be able to come, which would be really nice. Um, so I said, okay, we'll do just do wine glass as a backup. And then, you know, the whole Boston brouhaha started and everybody starts talking about Boston. And I have a, uh, you know, I have a qualifying time. I ran Chicago 2019 um, and I have a really solid BQ from that race. And I just thought, I saw the jacket, you know, the Boston jacket this year is beautiful. It's, I'm ridiculous, but I really seriously, the day I saw the jacket, I was like, oh man. Um, so I talked to my coach. I was like, what if I just threw my hat into the ring for Boston? Like, is that crazy? And look at this jacket. 
And he was like, well, you know, go for it. We don't know what's happening. Sure. So I got into Boston too. Um, so that's like the next weekend. So it's literally one weekend Berlin, one weekend wine glass, one weekend Boston. I am definitely not doing all of that. Um, and Berlin is the top, like if I can go to Berlin, I'm definitely doing that. And then I will do Boston, but more as a, you know, an, a race to enjoy rather than to run fast. Got it. So there's no way you do all three. So in choice number one would be race Berlin, jog Boston. Jog Boston. Yeah. In your new coat. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I that, already bought it. Well, that's exciting. And not only do you do all these races, but you have some audacious goals as well from a, from a time perspective. I do. So this is what I was going after you about. Um, so my PR is 344 from Chicago. And I think that there's this weird thing where you kind of go into no man's land when you're, for a long time, my goal was, and I put this a very particular way, um, I wanted to be able to qualify for Boston on a regular basis. So I didn't want to be a squeaker. And I've got nothing against anybody who has a different perspective. Like, I think this is part of what I was telling you. I think goals are really, really personal. And so for me, it wasn't just about a one-off race. It was taking my running life to the level where I could qualify for Boston on a regular basis. Um, so, you know, I kind of did that, which is amazing. Like, I can't believe I'm, these words are coming out of my mouth. It seems crazy. Um, but I've, qual I mean, I'm going to say this sentence that I can't believe. I've qualified for Boston the last four marathons I've run. I can't even believe that. That's insane. That is awesome. I, it's great, right? And it's crazy. Like, I can hardly believe this myself. But it puts you in this weird place. I'm 52. I'm not probably going to run a sub-three marathon. And I'm definitely not going to run an Olympic trials qualifying time, right? I think those are just out of reach. So then what do you do instead? Like, what comes after Boston? And I think we should have more markers um, for people to hit because it's really helpful to have something to aim for. Um, so then that's where I came up with this 3:30 goal. And a friend of mine helped me think about that. Um, 3:30 is the fastest time for women right now for Boston. And it's the first time, I think when they first separated men and women's times at Boston, that was the women's time. There's been a lot of change historically up and down, actually kind of in both directions. Um, but I, I'm really interested in running history. I'm really interested in women's running. So that's a time that has meaning for me beyond just being kind of nice and round. Um, so I don't know that I can get there to go from 344 to 330 is a really big jump. Um, and so I don't know that I can get there this training cycle. I think it's also a good idea to start the training cycle with a kind of open-ended um, idea. Like, I don't know what the result will be. Um, but to have a longer term goal of three thirty, yeah, that's something I can really get behind. I love that. And do you ever go to like the age, the age graded calculators? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> another thing. Did I tell you this piece of it? No. So I, I went and looked up the age graded time and it, the age graded time for me to run three thirty is two fifty nine. Oh, right. So, right. Then, so the, the, the equivalent of the, the breaking three. It's the equivalent of a sub three marathon, oh. which also I'm like, 
what? This is crazy. How could I possibly do that? Um, but some days I think it's crazy that I'm running at all because I didn't used to do anything athletic. So the fact that I'm doing all of this is amazing and I'm just going with it. That's funny. I'm like, I'm like bumping into the age grade calculator right now. (laughs) So that's what you need. You need a goal that is really coming from your heart. And I don't know if this, I love the mastering 40 by 40. That's fantastic. But I don't know if you love it. It's fine. All right. So that is, I'm looking at these age graded. I wonder if they're all, obviously they're all on different algorithms and stuff. It's because you have like, maybe I put it in wrong. Yeah. There's a little variation, which one you look up. Yeah, I'm even putting it in wrong. I'm at mastersathletics.net. This might even be their calculator. It might just be embedded into their site, and it's someone else's calculator. It looks suspiciously like the same font coloring as Runner's World calculators. <laughs> and who's ever seen those? Um, so I'm not going to say it's theirs, but it is on their site, and um, they have it. I'm, I am probably reading this wrong. But it looks like they're saying it's the equivalent of a 244 marathon. 244? But I feel like I'm – this is – There's got to be some mistake there. This this calculator is not user-friendly. <laughs> right, at it like, right. I feel and like, they give you, like, different things that it's equivalent to. So that – I don't think it's a 244. That's crazy. Okay. Though okay. that's also good. That's really close to OTQ. So that would also work. Well, this is like what we were talking about earlier of like, of like hunting for a diagnosis. I'd be like hunting for an age grading calculator that gave me the fastest possible time. Period. Be like, tell me, it's like, it's, this one's here says I got a 159. There you go. There you go. Take that, Kipchoge. Exactly. Um, yeah, because it was, it, was, it was two years ago. Dina Castor, not Dina Castor. Oh my God, my memory. Um, oh, the American champion in '84. Um, Joni. Joni. Good grief! I'm a professional running podcaster. I forget Joni Samuelson's name. Um, embarrassing. So a couple of years ago, I think she ran Boston. She was in her Bowden singlet, mm-hmm. right? And she ran like a 259, I think. And I think that year it age graded out as like. I think it was. And please, if you're listening to this, please correct me if I'm wrong. It was definitely like the best age-graded women's marathon performance of the year. And I think it might have been the best either gender. I think it was well. the best, period. Right. Um, and it's like, yeah, it was like she's like a 99.7% or whatever, right? Um, she's right. incredible. She's just yeah, it's insane. It's insane. Yeah, I'm on a different one. It says, okay, comes out as three hours, four minutes. Yeah. The same, yeah, right around the three minute, the three hour mark. Right, that is that's, that's really exciting. I'm into that. Um, yeah, I'll say like breaking the breaking forty minutes in the ten k for me that I was really excited by that because for me it was like something that didn't play into my strengths. Um, like I knew that I didn't have the recent running history to like go after a marathon because I'd been so injured and just hadn't had. had Hadn't done a lot of consistent stuff. So for me, it was like, okay, I could try to do the 5K, but that doesn't feel like a year-long journey type thing. Like, so it was kind of came down to like, all right, probably want to do the either like the half marathon or the 10K. Yeah. I I did a whole 10K training cycle like um spring 2020. I think that's a it's a super interesting distance and a really, really useful distance. You can just learn a lot. It's great training zone to spend time in. Um, right, because you're you're living in that threshold zone, which is like the one that that no one likes doing in training. And you're like, all right, well now you're going to race at that. 
Right, exactly. And like racing the 10K is so miserable. It's just totally awful. So then, you know, maybe I don't know where you are with your process because it looks like you're back running some, which is fantastic. A little bit. Yeah. So I ran 14. Let me get specific for all my Strava friends. I ran 14.4 miles last week, uh, which is exciting. Um, Yeah. So again, fingers crossed knocking on wood. Um, so we'll see what happens. So I'm not making any plans. Um, I will be at a marathon in the fall. Okay. Prop not, not from a running perspective. Could, may, may I be there to run and like part of the event again, these marathons usually have like the, the set, you know, they have more than just the 26.2 where you can enter the half. You sometimes you can enter a 5k or a 10k. So, um, I'm going to be announcing this more later in the month, but I do have something uh, on the calendar in the fall that I am really excited about. Will I be running a marathon there? We'll see. I think everything would have to break right over the so next six months. you're with the idea, though. I'm not, I'm not taking it off the table, but like literally, I would have to, for the next six months, no hiccups. Right. That would be a pretty tall task. It's a pretty tall task. It is. Right. Exactly. Well, exactly. and I so, don't think you should put um, I think that big goals are better without time horizons, right? So that's something that's achievable at some point. So first of all, if it's the kind of goal that you can achieve in six months, it's not big enough, right? You want something that you have to fight for for a longer period of time. But then it means it's hard to say, like, achieve this by X date. I think if it's a big enough goal, it's really hard to put a date on it. That's why for me, the meaning of the goal is the most important thing. Like if you find a goal that's meaningful, then it's worth chasing for a long time, even when you get some hiccups. Yeah. And in a previous episode, I mentioned that I wanted to break 330 marathon. And the reason that goal had meaning was because in the last marathon I did, that was kind of like, all right, I didn't go into the training block with a goal. It's like, hell, I'm preparing for the Cape Cod marathon and then we'll see what happens. Right. So went to the training block, went really, really well. And um, my coach in preparation was like, all right, I think you're at 3.30 fitness. I think that's where you're at. And like, that felt good to me. And went into the race and the last couple of miles, I had like this quirky knee injury happened. It was like the first time I'd ever been injured running. Um, and I was like, oh, I was on pace. And who, what have I gotten? I had no idea, right? Like the last five miles were going to be hard no matter what, even if I didn't get a little weird knee injury from running downhill with awful form. But um Needless to say, it didn't work. So for me, the the allure of that time at that distance is almost kind of like you were there 10 years ago. You were right. You were on the doorstep. Didn't happen in that race. Maybe it happened for another one. And I was just so dissatisfied with how that whole thing turned out. I was like, ah, forget it. And then I just kind of like, I don't even remember what happened after that. Oh, I had like these quirky little things happen after that. Um, I like overtrained and then I couldn't, I didn't get to a starting line once because I overtrained. Yeah. So I ran, I did the new Bedford half and I, I, I trained through it. It was just supposed to be a challenging long run. So seven weeks out from the Rhode Island Marathon, go to the New Bedford Half, which if anyone's been in, been to that race, it's extremely popular. And Massachusetts is a really, really good running state. So I ran that and I finished like in 730th place, but I ran way faster than I expected. I ran 132. Nice. That's great. And that shows you how good that race is. I, that finished like in the 700s. Yeah, that's a great time. Right. 
two weeks later, Sarah, I couldn't even run around the block because my body was like, we're done. Thanks, but no thanks. And I think it was because I wasn't sleeping a lot. I was just like training on like four hours of sleep for an extended period of time. I don't know. I didn't have inside tracker back then. So there might've been other stuff going on that I wasn't aware of. So I'm just kind of guessing. But basically after that, that's when I was like, I don't think I even considered a marathon for a very, very long time after that experience. Um, But now I kind of like got it. I don't even know why it's popping up now, frankly, but anyway. So I always tell people don't run a marathon unless you can't possibly avoid it. And when it starts to like haunt your dreams and consume your thoughts, that's when you should go for it. So is it is it haunting your dreams for the past eight years? Uh, yes. The marathon haunts my dreams. There's, yes. I mean, anybody who would be good friends with me would be laughing right now and they'd say, that's totally true. <laughs> this awesome. woman is obsessed. <laughs> Sarah, we're going to leave it off there. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a joy to talk to you about all of this. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. This was super fun, Matt. All right. Thank you so much to Sarah, to Prevenex, and to Harry's for sponsoring this podcast. I use Prevenex. I use Harry's. It's so great that both of them want to sponsor the show because even if they didn't, they'd still be in my cabinets. One in the bathroom, one in the, in the kitchen. I love those guys. And it's so great that they're here. The Harry starter set. That's how I got involved. I love the Harry starter set. They're absolutely fantastic. It's like three bucks. It's like the like steal of a deal. It really is. Um, and I use them today. I've been using them for years. Uh, in fact, I need to use them. I need to use them today, actually. My uh, my stubble is growing out a little bit here. That's the thing about Harry's, though. doesn't matter how long the stubble gets. I can still... Still cut right through it with the razor. It's not going to get all nasty. So big fan of that. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to bring another episode to you on Friday. Thank you for your patience. This one's going out a little bit later than normal. That's my fault. Uh, But needless to say, hopefully you thought this conversation was worth it. I certainly did. I love talking to Sarah. So thank you so much for listening. Happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.